Hello, how was your 2019? Starting uh, in just a few days, uh, we'll all be able to say for an entire year, we got 2020 vision. Also though, every single month of the year will have a 420 in it. That's right, high five, Melissa. Mm, man, if she wasn't sitting all the way across the room, that would have been a good high five. Um, You know what? Uh, this was supposed to be the, the, the Christmas Eve episode. It isn't, couldn't be, won't be, can't be. That doesn't mean that I can't still bring you people something that will hopefully make you, you know, uh, it'll, it'll help you appreciate what you have and not so much think that your life is shit. Because some people uh, don't have that luxury anymore. So, fucking, god damn it, open your eyes, take a big deep breath. Fucking big smile. I don't give a shit how fucking fake it is because a smile, no matter how forced, will turn into a real smile eventually. Love you guys. Have a wonderful 2020. Be safe. And please enjoy. July 30th, 2008, the fit, young, Tim McLean boarded Greyhound Bus 1170 from the gorgeous city of Edmonton, Alberta. The bus was destined for Winnipeg via the Yellowhead Highway, which lazily transports travelers of all sorts through Saskatchewan. This particular Tim, though, was on the uncomfortable Greyhound Bus journey back to his family and loved ones. A carnival worker by trade, he had just completed a stint as a barker for an Alberta gig. This life was one in which he absolutely relished and thrived. So having paid his way to cross along the Canadian Hillbilly Highway, he was off, awaiting a well-deserved stay at mom and dad's to unwind and be young alongside his younger siblings. Wanting, you know, just like a low-key journey after a period of being paid to grab the attention of each passerby, he chooses a window seat, second to last row, and quietly deposits his exhausted frame. He slips on his headphones and instinctively his eyes close as if they had been playhouse curtains signaling the close of the first act of this edgy slice-of-life drama. So now we begin Act 2. Vincent Weigong Lee, commonly known as, as Vince Lee, was born in Dandong, Liaoning, China, on April 30, 1968. He'd achieved a Bachelor of Science degree in computers, 
graduating from the University of Wuhan IT in 1992. From 94 to 98, Vince had worked as a, a computer software engineer, basically, just in and around Beijing. And then he couldn't find any more work there, so he moved to Canada and pretty much failed there as well. But after a short stop at 6.55 p.m. to allow passengers off and on the Greyhound bus, it continued its journey with Vince as one of the newest members of the 1170 years. You know, that gets better every time I say it. 1170 years. And never loses its charm. Being as nondescript as a tall 40-year-old Asian man getting on a Greyhound bus can be, Vincent Lee sporting the most vacant of expressions took a seat near the front of the bus. The other passengers not thinking twice about this somewhat off-putting middle-aged Chinese-Canadian immigrant. I mean, why would they? He, he hadn't given anyone cause for alarm. What these particular passengers didn't know was that he had spent the previous 24 hours sitting at a bus station with a sign in front of his feet saying, Laptop for sale, $500. Having recently lost the most recent in a string of unsuccessful employment opportunities. Vinnie Lee had all but given up and decided to sell the only possession he had that would allow him to eat for at least another week. He sat with nary a single blink of his eyes for 24 hours. And the next morning, just before he had to board his bus, a teenager offered him 60 bucks for the laptop, and uh, this, the sale had been made. Having chosen his own personal plot of bus seat in which to proverbially plow, he too is taken on the deja vu-inducing monotony of vast agricultural landscapes. Though, the increasingly hypnotic nature of the view is made all the more entrancing by an unblinking thousand-yard stare, it would seem. Greyhound buses, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, make quite a few stops throughout their journeys. Sometimes it's at large city bus stations to unload every single passenger and start fresh, with a new seating of the widest range of humanity that I personally think is possible. Other times, it's a stop in what you would think could only be the future mass murder site of an entire busload of people perpetrated by an irate driver that's too old for this shit. You know, his last check was like four weeks late. It's, it's coming, but... But in reality, the brief stopover is to retrieve a one single person who got what had to have been a three-hour car ride or four-week walk just to stand for fucking Hawkins knows how long at a bus stop in the middle of fucking nowhere. I always like to imagine that they were going to go visit their big city kin. Maybe go to a show. They heard some good things about this one that's got cats in it. Come on, Melissa, that's that's... That's musical humor. Damn it. That's fun. <sighs> Still, other stops are for mundane tedium. Simple as stopping at convenience stores once every couple hours to make sure that your drink and snack situation is properly prepared. Or to stop literally in the middle of nowhere for a 15-minute smoke em if you got em type of deal. It's in the latter of these circumstances that our group of intrepid journeymen now find themselves. Once the people that uh, did indeed got em, had smoked them, the nicotine-relaxed few were instructed to board the gleaming metallic monstrosity to find their seats. People change seating all the time on buses. I personally only have removed for two reasons. 
One, if the person sitting next to you is at the point in the four-day long bus ride without sleep, let alone showers, where you could only faithfully describe their odor as a ripened, pungent scream that oozes fear and hatred. And it's fucking totally cool to relocate. Second, I was at the very same point in the marination process and considered a polite retreat more palatable than watching my fellow man flee with tears in their eyes. Ah, memories. Now, I can't confirm that either of these were the reason Vince Lee changed seating, but I also can't not confirm it. Haha. Take that, history and such. As destiny, being neither good nor evil, neither black nor white, would see to have it, Mr. Lee saw an unoccupied seat. A seat that looks like it's going to be super comfortable at first, but then it turns out you'd be better off trying to sleep on one of those molded plastic swivel seats that McDonald's used to have in the 80s. Well, you know, destiny being what it is only delivers what the universe deems inevitable. So the unavoidable truth is that Vincent Lee sat down right next to Tim McLean. As the bus leaves the terminal, Tim once again dons his headphones and drifts off to pass the time. And for a full half hour, the peace is unbreakable. The silence is golden. As Act 3 explodes onto the stage... The deafening silence is cut with an almost otherworldly terror scream. A piercing cacophony that was instantly recognized as the sound that a man would make when violently ripped from his slumber. Mixed with the instant realization that the combat blade embedded deep inside his neck, wielded by the complete stranger that just happened to sit next to him, would surely, greedily, take his life. All that Tim could do, his only course of action, was to scream. The trumpeting proclamation that signifies the final ending, with accepted and completely understood finality, has to be the most terrifying sound. An echo that would have the expressed ability to tear out a part of your inner light, the result of which is an ever-widening dead spot on the soul. A scream that haunts for outstanding reason. As Vincent Lee now skewers and lacerates Tim McLean, Shock instinctively changes to mindless panic. Passengers fleeing, deservedly so, notice an odd thing about the ultraviolence that's unfolding in front of their eyes. They later admit that their puzzlement was with the fact that the attacker looked just incredibly calm. In fact, one passenger, uh, Garnet Catan, would later describe the attacker. There was no rage or anything. He was like a robot stabbing the guy. There were, of course, a few willing to risk personal safety to stop the stab machine nightmare man, but it was evident very quickly that the brutal attack had ended Tim McLean expediously. So the task now at hand becomes containment, or there would only be more bloodshed and insanity. So they bar the doors to the cabin, and Lee starts to realize that he can't just fucking walk away from this. His next move would be an everlasting, deeply engorged scar on the psyche of all that were present. Lee is observed returning to the lifeless body of McLean and using the same fucking giant knife, proceeds to hack away at the neck of the victim until he liberates the head from the body, holding the newly freed brain satchel as if it were the head of Medusa and the terrified, sobbing, vomiting bystanders were Krakens newly released. After what can only be described as gruesome made manifest on display, Vincent sauntered back to the lifeless, headless body of Tim McLean. 
Like a man with a silent mission from God, he retrieves his tool and he gets to work. Carving up piece by piece the remains of the young man who screams only moments ago would go on to imprint so deeply upon the universe that every person possessing any kind of empathy knew a new kind of sadness and fear. As the Act 4 players stand in shadowy silhouette awaiting their cue, we see the clock strike 8.30pm. Enter the Royal Mounted Canadian Police. The situation they've arrived upon held so many questions that needed clarification. There before them sat two shouldered Greyhound buses, a big rig truck, many confused and frightened beyond belief passengers huddled in falsely reassuring clusters and three men trying with every last ounce of resolve to keep whatever eldritch horror seemed to be kept captive within the flimsy aluminum and glass lined walls of the hulking transport. Having no shortage of escape attempt from Lee, the driver of 1170 quickly engaged the emergency immobilization system, rendering the, the engine inoperable. The two other men standing watch at the most escapable route brandished a cinching pipe and a hammer. Both men absolutely capable of dismantling Lee to scraps if prompted with the danger of his escape. One of these brave souls was a fellow passenger. No doubt, reliving the recent life-ending dread terror knowing that he could have easily been the one who lost his life that night. The third man is a trucker in his early 20s. Seeing two buses on the side of the road he thought to be a good Samaritan, and then ended up tripping right into a new existence marred and pocked with a new kind of uncertainty. All three men were physically and mentally exhausted. They were beyond elated to see authority arrive, knowing that that respite would soon follow. It's now 9 p.m. The RMCP are in a standoff with Lee. They called in a special negotiator and a heavily armed tactical unit. Well, now Lee begins pacing the full length of the bus, not unlike a cornered predator looking for any opening to disappear. Only taking sh short breaks and, you know, in between to... Fuck. <clears throat> Only taking short breaks in between to slice pieces of Tim and ingest them. Jesus fucking Christ, man. Just when you're like, yay, the cops are here... Now the motherfucker starts eating the dude. Fuck. Through negotiation, the police seem to get only one response from Lee. I have got to stay on this bus forever, he yells. Maybe that would have been for the greater good. At 1.30am on what is now the 31st, Lee attempts to make a break for freedom, and he breaks the back window of the bus when he is promptly tasered twice, handcuffed, and officially taken into custody. While searching him, little surprises were produced from his pockets. First, one of Tim's ears. Next, his nose. Finally, the piece that refuses to be resisted, his tongue. Tim McLean's eyes and part of his heart were never found, presumably eaten by Lee. At 10 a.m., Greyhound had buses pick up the other passengers and had them driven to a clothing store to replace the clothes that they had to leave on the crazy motherfucking murder wagon. 
then finally, finally, at 3.30 p.m., they were delivered to the family and loved ones that were awaiting them in Winnipeg. Many that were on 1170 developed just severe drug and alcohol dependencies. The first Mountie to board the bus after the arrest was so life-changingly disturbed that after wrestling with the post-traumatic stress of that day for six years, he took his own life. The biggest thing that resonated with me more than anything else in the story was how each and every passenger, years later, would say that they can still hear that scream. They can still hear Tim. Through all the pain and all the anguish, they can still experience that moment in eternity through that sound. On March 3rd, 2009, Lee's trial commenced. Lee pleading not criminally responsible, also known as the insanity plea. A loss of mens rea. Psychiatrists testified that Lee had only carried out the attack because he thought that God had told him to. The judge accepted this explanation, and Lee was remanded to Selkirk Mental Health Center. The next eight steps in the story will bring us to the story's end. These steps show how, in eight years, a man that murdered, decapitated, and cannibalized another man in front of many, many other people is allowed to live under a new name alongside the rest of us. Step number one. On June 3rd, 2010, Lee was granted supervised outdoor walks within his mental health facility, as voted by the Provincial Review Board. Step two. On May 30th, 2011, the CBC reported that Lee was responding well to his psychiatric treatment and that his doctor had recommended that he receive more freedoms, phased in over several months. Step three. On May 17th, 2012, the National Post reported that Lee had been granted temporary passes that would allow him out of the Selkirk Mental Health Center for visits to the town of Selkirk, supervised by a nurse and peace officer. In an interview, Lee spoke for the first time, saying that he began hearing, and I quote, the voice of God in 2004, and that he, he wanted to save the people from an alien attack. Step four. February 27th, 2014, the CBC reported that on March 6th, Lee would be allowed to have unsupervised visits to Selkirk, starting at 30 minutes and expanding to full-day trips. Since 2013, he had been allowed to have supervised visits to Lockport, Winnipeg, and nearby beaches. Those visits were then relaxed. Step 5. On February 27th, 2015, CBC News reported that Lee was given unsupervised day passes to visit Winnipeg so long as he carried a functioning cellular telephone while using them. Step number six. On May 8, 2015, CTV News reported that Lee would be granted passes to group homes in the community. Step number seven. In February of 2016, it was reported that Lee had legally changed his name and was seeking to leave his group home to live independently. He won the right to live alone, February 26th, upon the recommendation of the Criminal Code Review Board. Step number eight, aka the last. On February 10th, 2017, the Manitoba Criminal Code Review ordered Lee be discharged. 
Lee was granted an absolute discharge. There will be no legal obligations or restrictions pertaining to his independent living. Good night, Mr. Will Baker, wherever you are. And a happy new year to you all.